Well, it's uh, an interesting book to follow, and we are going to go through every chapter and every verse over the next, um, it'll take about, uh, uh, I think, to about the end of uh, October-ish, sometime around then. So uh, please do read it at home and follow it through as well, and follow up some of the notes that you may have in your head. I just want to walk you through some aspects of this, and then look in detail at verses 12 to verse 26. And I would invite you to get your Bibles out from the, pulp, from the uh, chair in front of you, or wherever you can find one, to look at this in depth. But let's take a look first at um, the uh, story so far. Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians. That's a picture of ancient Philippi. And uh, he reached the uh, town of Philippi uh, during his second missionary journey. Uh, and you can see Philippi is in Europe, whereas Troas and all the other places he had gone on his first missionary journey are in Asia, in Turkey. And Philippi was the first town he got to, which, as Barry explained last week, was a Roman colony. And you can see here the amphitheater where Paul was dragged out with Silas and beaten. And we think, oh, well, even if he took his top off, get a few slaps on the back, and that was it. Not a bit of it. It was horrible experience because what they did then is that they stripped them naked. They then beat them. Several people would have beaten each of them, Silas and Paul, with, with big rods. And not just the back, down through the buttocks and all the way to the thighs and the legs. They would have made an awful mess of his back. And as we know, the jailer had to tend to their wounds. It was a disgraceful, shameful experience. But that's what they had to go through. And let's see what we are reminded of the time. Firstly, it is a community of serving and retired military families. It was a garrison fort, as you can see, on the edge of Europe. Secondly... It was a Gentile community. There was no synagogue. That's why Lydia and the other women who would have been Jewish gathered outside the town alongside a riverbank. And Paul always sought out Jews when he went to a city. And he couldn't find any in it because there weren't any. The Romans wouldn't allow them to have a synagogue or worship anything other than the Roman gods. But there they were, a Gentile community. And thirdly, we read, and this passage has made it clear, that the church, by the time Paul wrote back to them, was organized. It had a leadership. It was gospel-based. It was sharing the good news about Jesus, and it was a biblical church. Hang on a minute. Retired, serving military families, Gentile, organized biblical church. Where does that remind me of? Somewhere a bit nearer than... Uh, Philippi, this is Amesbury Baptist Church is talking. Well, it's Amesbury, let's call it. This is anywhere that you have a similar situation. And of course, that's the beauty. And that's us. So there's a lot in this for us. But if you look at the first couple of verses, Paul gives greetings to the church. And so this is where I want you to get your Bibles up on your laps, one, page 193 and 194. Because what Paul goes into is his letter of introduction to describe himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. The word he uses there is the word doulos. That does not mean a deacon-type servant. It means a slave. And the slaves in those days, apart from all the history that we think of them, uh, were ordinary, normal people who couldn't afford to live without getting employed by somebody else. And the idea of a slave doesn't imply all the horrible things that we have noticed in our generation, but it was someone who was a dedicated employee, a work person, who was working dear, dearly for their boss, and they'd given themselves over to his lifetime service or family. 
And so they, Paul describes himself as that type of individual for Christ Jesus, a slave of Christ, willing to serve him, whatever. And he writes to the church who are the saints. Have you ever thought, I can't see a stained glass window to your face or name here, because I can see your faces. Every one believer in this church this morning is a saint. You need a stained glass window, or you don't actually, to be a saint. In other words, if you believe in Jesus, you're sanctified, set apart, i.e. a saint. And that's who he writes to. With the bishops and deacons, old-fashioned word bishops, most other translations say overseers or elders. That is, those responsible for the teaching, the doctrine, the discipline of the church, and the direction of the church. And we in Amesbury Baptist also have elders. There's just two of us at the moment but there may be more. We have deacons as well, and the deacon is a servant, one who could be in the Sundays. Anybody who serves is regarded as a deacon, and there are individuals who are leaders who can be set apart for specific leadership roles as deacons. And that is an organized church, if you ask me. But what do we hear from Paul? Well, Paul, in verses 12 through to 26, gives three statements, three things that are about the church, but they're actually his autobiography. He's describing to the Philippians his situation in Rome. All right? So in verses 12 to verse 14, if you look at it, he's talking about what has happened to me. There you've got it in verse 12. Uh, The past circumstances what got him there? What was the journey? And then the second one is in verses 15 to verse 18. If you look through those, some proclaim Christ, etc., etc., he goes on to say, I have been put here for the gospel. He's telling them, here I am in Rome. Here is my present situation. This is what's happened to me. And this is not, this is, sorry, this isn't what's happened. This is what I find myself doing. And of course, the heart of it is the gospel for him. And then the last verses from verses 19 to verse 26, he describes his future confidence, my eager expectation and hope. In other words, beyond Rome, this is where I expect God to lead me. So you've got the past, present, and future. Dead easy, isn't it? And a simple breakdown of these uh, verses in this passage. And I hope God will help you understand and dig deeper into his word. But let's get the context first of all. We know Paul arrived in Rome. We know that he was a prisoner, and he was dragged there as a prisoner, and he was in a house of his own. He rented it. And so he had freedom to roam around the house. However, he also had guards from the praetorium or garrison, uh, 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 Caesar's household sometimes described as, who would come and be chained to him to make sure he didn't run away. And there you see a bronze image of that. But he could still preach the gospel. He could still have hospitality. There were no prison guards to come and say, oh, here's your lunch, mate, and wait for your breakfast. No, no. His friends had to feed him and look after him. And of course, the church at Philippi gave him that opportunity and funded that amongst others. But that's his situation. So let's move on and see what we go through. Firstly, verses 12 to 14. Follow this through if you've got your Bible. We're looking at Paul's past circumstances. What got him to Rome? What was his journey about? 
He was a prisoner. Do you know what he was charged with? Because if you do, you're better than I am, and anybody else in the Bible. Here's what the people who charged him said in the book of Acts. Lieutenant Colonel Claudius Lysias, commander of the battalion in Jerusalem, who arrested him, said this. There was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. And he sent them to the governor with a blank sheet. The governor, Felix, was a squirmy, horrible man. Caesar got rid of him after two years. And he wanted a bribe from Paul. And Paul was faced with his accusers, looked at Felix in the eye and said, they can't prove the charges. And Felix knew that. But after two years, Caesar got rid of him and replaced him with uh, another governor, Porcius Festus. Well, Porky Pig here said, I have found nothing deserving death of this man. And that was after two years of inquisition. And he then brought King Herod Agrippa in. And Herod Agrippa said, this man isn't doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Well, that's not a very satisfactory charge sheet to send someone the whole way from Syria all the way across to Rome to face Caesar. But that's why he got there. And he points out, Herod, he could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. Why did Paul appeal to Caesar? Well, because Porky Festus said, well, why don't you go back to Jerusalem and face your charges in Jerusalem? Well, the problem there is that the last person who did that was Jesus, and they would have been subject to Jewish law, and that wasn't going to work out. But more, lots of Jews had pledged themselves to fast without water or food until they killed Paul, and they would intercept him and kill him on the route. And Paul simply said, I'm not putting up with that justice. As a Roman citizen, I deserve to be tried. And it was a way of ensuring he went to Rome, number one, and ensuring that he stayed alive. But then came the shipwreck, which we saw in a previous edition. So Paul looks at the, the Philippian church. And here he is in his harsh circumstances, badly treated to get there, uh, imprisoned, but yet still free to talk. And what does he say? I'm praying for you. And I'm miserable, and I'm really suffering here, and I can't stand it. No, he was not a prisoner of his circumstances. He says, I'm praying with joy. There are 16 references to joy and rejoicing in this book. He saw through the circumstances, and never let circumstances dictate who you are or what you do. Paul was dictating it the other way around. And he said, look, actually, what has happened has helped spread the gospel so that the whole imperial guard is knowing why I'm here. And he was strapped to prison, to prison officers or to, to uh, soldiers, and so they would hear the gospel all day, and it would be ringing in their ears, they'd go back to the barracks in the praetorium, and then they'd share it with their mates. And then they'd get converted, and then they'd come and hear more, and then more and more people, and then the servants of Caesar were coming to faith in Christ. Amazing! So don't think your circumstances should hold you back. Your circumstances are where God has put you for a purpose, whether you understand it or not, but God has a bigger thing in mind. And of course, he helped spread the gospel. But of course, not everyone saw it that way. It says that there were some who didn't see it quite the same. They wanted to 
see things differently. And many despair. Have you seen Fiddler on the Roof? Great film about the experience of the Jews in the Russian pogrom. And Tevier, who is one of the major characters, sings this song and says, Lord, you made the lion and the lamb. You decreed I should be what I am. Would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man? And of course, we would all like to be a wealthy man and win the lottery and, order and all that nonsense sort of thing. And of course, if I could just change the circumstances, then life would be different. I'd be better and happier. And that is not the case. And those that win the lottery... Do they get a happiness? They get misery alongside it. Those who are rich have more misery than ever. And of course, we always would think, if I could only move away somewhere else, if I could only be uh, got another uh, qualification or, or more money, I could then do this. God has placed you where you are in this seat this morning because he deliberately wants you to be here and part of this fellowship in this church and part of your family and community, because he wishes to use you as you are. If everybody won the lottery when they became, how many people would become Christians for genuine reasons? Because they want to serve the Lord. They would just put other things. So, Neil Gaiman, a, a, an English author, said, look, wherever you go, the problem is you take yourself with you. But the beauty is, in God's eyes, wherever you go, you take the gospel of Jesus with you. And Paul then says, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? I mean, here he was chained, and yet he's content because he knows why he's here. And so the question I put to you is, do you know why you're here? Why are you here? What are you doing? Why has God called you here? You're here to share and to serve the gospel in the here and now, not some distant future existence Oh, far away or on some brilliant cloud in the sky. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. That's a challenge to all of us. And uh, that's what we find that was here. He's not a prisoner of his circumstances. But also, we find in the next verse, it says that most of the brothers and sisters are being made confident and speak the word with greater boldness. Paul is building fellowship. And here in Rome, he's finding the brothers and sisters are coming to him, and he's encouraging them, and his example is encouraging them. You might not think your life is an example that's encouraging others. You've got that dead wrong. God uses each of us in some small ways to be an encouragement to others in the fellowship. And while you might only see the faults, God sees your good points and uses them for others. So we serve the Lord. The second thing it says is Paul's present situation. And these we move down from verses 15 to 18. And so Paul's describing what it's like for him in, here in Rome. And you can see, I have been put here for the defense of the gospel. He knows why he's alive. He knows what it's for. And so should we. Wherever you've been put is for the presentation, defense, and sharing of the gospel. But it does point out some of the people in Rome didn't like this. They were proclaiming Christ, but they had their own ambitions. They had a, they had a hidden agenda. 
And we find this quite a lot in the New Testament. The people became Christians, and they worshipped the Lord and led others to do so, but then they weren't content. They had an agenda. They wanted to make them more like them. They wanted to manipulate people. They wanted to have their own way, politically, financially, whatever, all sorts of things. Those who were Jewish wanted people to be circumcised, or they wanted them to obey the laws of Moses. And Paul never taught that. He set an example. You don't become just like uh, what we squeeze you into the mold, but rather we, we, you, you, you share the gospel and you let God do the work inside. And that's how he did it. He shared the gospel. I'm going to give an illustration here, but I thought it's better not to use an illustration from you English people because you'll all get, somebody will get upset somewhere. So I'm going to use an illustration from my own country in Northern Ireland as to what it can be like when people preach the gospel and they mingle it with their own selfish ambitions and agendas. And I wonder, do you remember or recognize any of these people? Shout it out. Anyone recognize the, the guy on the left? Uh, Ian Paisley, that's right, uh, or should I give him a full, Reverend Dr. Ian Paisley, as he called himself. Anyhow, as you can see, he's got a Union Jack in front of him, and he actually, it's quite, quite an interesting character, I did introduce Daria to him once, uh, he's, <laughs> despite the press in England, he's actually quite a humorous fella, he, and he's got quite a wit, but you, you wouldn't notice that from, from the, the TV. But the thing is, he was... And, uh, and have been for his career, a dedicated, a dedicated out. so others such as Martin Luther King may have had a different agenda, but the same thing, getting involved in politics was the problem with the agenda. However, he was a great gospel preacher. He could share. The point is that it's easy to get involved in other things outside the gospel and make them the agenda. The chap in the middle, actually, is another chap, he's an American, called... Uh, Haggai, Dr. John Haggai, a great evangelist and preacher. And he came to Belfast as well, and he preached the gospel in a park directly opposite the church where uh, Reverend Paisley had one. And of course, it was brilliant. I went there, and it was a gorgeous display of the gospel, challenging, and many people came to Christ. But unfortunately, the people in the Free Presbyterian Church didn't uh, support that and spoke against it. And then the third uh, characters are other people that came to Belfast during the Troubles. And I wondered you recognize the fellow in the white uh, coat. Anyone recognize who that might be? Billy Graham, yes. He came to Northern Ireland in the 70s, uh, and I heard him as well. And alongside is a fellow called Arthur Blessed. And they again came to share the gospel in Belfast. And again, people in Northern Ireland spoke against them because they didn't like the way they associated with other churches. Now, what I'm trying to get at here is you have three different people presenting the gospel of Christ, bringing the good news of Jesus, and bringing the gospel in different ways, but yet arguing against each other in different ways. And uh, so what happened, Paul looked at this and said, this is the way that you get it here in Rome. Some people have an agenda of their own, and clearly Paul has his agenda, and some people have got their own thoughts and ideas that they bolster or embroider on top of the gospel. Paul's response to this was simple. I don't care. Every one of them, regardless of their faults, is sharing the gospel. Do you get the thinking? that it doesn't matter what the label, what the denomination, or what the thing is, as long as people are sharing the gospel, that is the core of why we exist. Not to push our own agendas, not to push what we believe. 
that would be added on top of that. So that's why Paul says, Christ is proclaimed in every way. Whatever the motives are, false or true, I rejoice. And so he now moves forward to what the future is. He looks forward to what will happen next. And believe it or not, he understands that he's had two years of waiting for trial and he's had to address Caesar. He knows what the outcome will be. He says this, I expect this will result in my deliverance. And it is my eager expectation and hope I will not be put to shame. The words eager expectation are very interesting Greek words. It's the term that is used in a race. Now you watch a race and do you notice when you get to the end and the cameras all line up that the clever athletes stick their neck out at the front to try and see if they can get over the line. That is the term in Greek, eager expectation, that is used to indicate this yearning to get across the line. And Paul is doing that. His ambition to serve Jesus, his commitment to Jesus, is sovereign in all he does. And he expects that Christ will be exalted now, as always, whether in life or in death. So that is his expectation, that is his joy, and that is what he plans to do. Have we got that confidence? Regardless of what happens in life, our expectation, the driving force of our life, is to serve Jesus. The clock of life is wound but once, and no man has the power to tell just when the hands will stop, at late or early hour. To lose one's wealth is sad indeed. To lose one's health is more. To lose one's soul is such a loss that no man can restore. And the present is our only. So live, love, toil with a will. Place no faith in tomorrow. For the clock may then be still. Whether it's life or death, we praise God. We live for him and we make sure we are following him and sharing it. And so Paul comes to this lovely phrase. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And this gets to the heart of it. If we live... We don't live for our own selves. We live for Christ. If we die, we care not. It is but a door that leads us through to the kingdom of glory. It is a way through that will reward us. All the struggles, the strife, the pain, the racking, the cancer, the, uh, the disease, the, 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 the uh, uh, bones going wrong, the, the head going doolally, all of that we look forward to being removed from when Christ takes us to be with himself. But, Paul says this, if I live in the body, it's fruitful labor. In other words, I'm here to work, to serve. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart. The word depart, again, the Greek idea is a ship weighs anchor, gets ready to sail. And we will one day weigh anchor, but it doesn't matter. He is going to get ready to be with Christ because that is better. However, he says, to remain in the body is more necessary for you. Why does God let you live? Why, the moment you were converted, didn't God take you to heaven immediately? Billy Sunday used to preach and say, best thing could happen to you is that you get saved at the front here of this meeting, walk out and get hit by a bus and go straight to heaven. He was wrong. The best thing could happen here is that you go out and you serve others. Our existence is not for our selfish reason or ourselves. It is to remain 
it is more necessary for others, in this case, the Philippians. And that's how he finishes. John Wesley said these words, Until my work on this earth is done, I am immortal. But when my work for Christ is done, I go to be with Christ. That is how we view it. Death is but the way through. However, as his colleague Whitfield said, we are immortal until our work is done. I want you to go away with this thought. I am immortal until my work for Jesus is done. And the moment that Jesus says, I think you've finished, well, you're going to be straight with him. What's the fear? And until then, you're immortal. It's not your moment. You don't know when it is. I don't know when it is. But until then, you're immortal. In other words, we keep serving faithfully, sharing the good news, and making sure that others get the chance to hear it. So he finishes off saying, this is my conviction. I know I will remain and continue with you. He knows he's getting out of jail eventually. And that joy, and that I may share in your boasting, or rejoicing is the translation that is correct, when I come to you again. He will go back to Philippi and meet them. He's confident. Why? Not because he's any great good about himself, but because he knows God has got the plan and will look after him. Let me summarize. Number one, circumstances. They're not yours. God is in control, not you. But be joyful in them, whatever your circumstances. Number two, fellowship. We're here to serve, not to be served, as was our master. So seek opportunities for that service. Number three, the gospel. We're here to witness. We're not here to keep it quiet. It's our reason for living. And I love the uh, uh, mission, that, that chap in the middle. I showed you the picture of uh, Dr. Haggai. He used to sing every, every uh, meeting they started off with him. He is my reason for living. He is my joy and my crime. And that is our reason for living, the gospel, in love, humility, and honesty. And finally, commitment, ambition, life or death. Who cares? God's in control, not you, not me. Keep going. It was William Carey was a missionary. Went out to India, one of the first, first Baptist missionaries. And after many years, he had been a cobbler, and then he became a missionary. And after many years, they said to him, what was the secret of your success in India? It wasn't dramatic magic or anything going on. He just was simple. He said, I can plod. That's it. One step at a time. And that's the way he, lit. he plodded and continued to work, pray, and build the church. And that is what we're called to do as a fellowship, as individuals, and as people of God. May God grant us, as we reflect on this, that individual power and strength and reassurance that whatever our circumstances, for me to live is Christ, for me to die is gain, but until then, I am immortal. You are.